0: Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be here this morning. I was uh, originally scheduled to uh, preach in here in July, or, and uh, we had a little change of schedule, so I'm glad to get an opportunity to be in the hub with you this morning. And I'm actually really glad that uh, is it the princess that just read, that that you kind of stumbled with this the passage this morning, finding it. It really fits with my message wherever you went to. So it does, it fits my message very, very well. Um, I'll let you know why in just a minute. But as, uh, as Jake said earlier, we have been on a series this month, month of August, on faith and family, the gospel on display. And during this series, we started off the first Sunday, Uh, Joe was in the auditorium, and I believe Chris was in here, and we talked about the family of God and talked about how we we were aliens, we were strangers, but God has brought us in by the blood of his son. One of the key verses that I picked up from that passage was Ephesians 2.19, which says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we've been brought into the family as believers in Jesus Christ. The second week, Pastor Sam was preaching in the auditorium, and Jake was here in the hub, and that, passage was, uh, that, that message was about marriage. And I listened to Jake's message. I think his title was How to Stay Married. I loved that title. That was great uh, because we certainly want to do that. One of the key verses that I picked up from, from that week was Ephesians 2. 5, 32, and 33, which says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And speaking about the husband and wife, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then we came to week three. This was last week. And last week, again, Pastor Sam was over in the auditorium, and I believe Joe was in here in the hub. And the message was really about parent-child relationships. Really good passage, just a short passage there in Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 6 rather, verse 1 through 4. And it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, So that brings us to this week. Quick review, okay? I have a reason for doing that. Uh, but that brings us up to this week, week four. And the theme today, is, as Jake said earlier, is really hope for hurting families. I would like to modify it just a little bit. It's not just hope for hurting families, but it's also hope for hurting individuals. Before I get into the message uh, completely, I'd like to just share a little little story with you. Many of you may be familiar with the show Seinfeld. Anybody ever watched Seinfeld back in the 90s? You know, many of you in here are watching Seinfeld reruns. Some of us are old enough to have watched it when it was actually on TV. But uh, on that show, uh, there was something that really stuck out to me that I wanted to share, kind of remind some of you about this morning. Uh, You may remember there's a character on the show. His name is George Costanza. And George is always stressing out about something. You know, and George didn't actually come from what we would call a a good, uh, normal Christian home. I would say George came from a dysfunctional family. And you get to meet George's parents, and you can kind of see that story lived out right there. Well, George's dad, his name is Frank, he, came, he invented this, this uh, holiday. Anybody remember what the holiday's called? Festivus. Festivus. He came up with this holiday, and, and what stuck in my mind is he, he said it was Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus for the rest of us. He was a little frustrated with Christmas, so he wanted a Festivus for the rest of us. And it was a chance for him to air his grievances with all of his family As they gathered around the table. And he came up with all his own weird traditions. But George's family was a little odd. (laughs) They weren't like the normal family that we would like to see in most cases. Most of us would like to belong to. But if the truth be known, all of our families are a little odd. Uh, And so the message this morning is, what about the rest of us? That's my title. What about the rest of us? We've been talking about being part of the family of God. And then we talked about being part of a family, a husband and wife that are to love each other and follow all these scriptural uh, instructions for how to interact with each other. And then we talked about a family that had children that raised children and raised them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and children that honor their parents. And, and all of that is great. But what if you don't feel like you fit? What if you don't feel like you fit? What if your situation is such that you're hearing all this and you're saying, well, all that doesn't exactly fit my life? I'd like to tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, uh, I grew up, I was born in 1963. Full disclosure. Yay! (laughs) Old guy. Um, When I was growing up, all of my friends... I thought, came from what I considered a normal family. I didn't think I came from a normal family. My mother married my stepfather in uh, the 40s, and they had four children, and then they got divorced. And then she married my dad and stayed married to him long enough for me to get, maybe, I I was born, and I think by the time I was 18 months old, she was divorced from my dad, married to her first husband. And then when I was in high school they got divorced again and got married again after Kathy and I got married. So every time I would talk to my children about their cousins or relatives and try to explain who fit where, their eyes would just cross and then get kind of this glazed look on their face because they couldn't relate to that. You know, it was just who who's who's this one belong to and who's I mean I've got cousins everywhere, just let me tell you. My aunts and uncles I've never met and And all that sort of thing. So our family was not what I considered growing up the normal family. I remember my friends would often ask me, why is your last name different from your brother's last name? Now, I know that is a little more common nowadays than it was when I was growing up. But I've got to tell you, growing up that way, I felt, I mean, if I'd been sitting in church and I'd been hearing the messages we've heard over the last three weeks, I would have thought, when are you going to preach something for me? Because I don't fit. And this passage that we just read, I believe addresses that. I believe Paul is addressing that very thing. If you'll look with me in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So that tells us that he's answering questions that they had posed to him. Now the very next Statement. The very next sentence talks about this idea of sex within the marriage and, and all that. But but all of these things seem to be answers to the, the questions. He said, the matters that you wrote. So they were trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus Christ in a corrupt world, in a corrupt city, and many of these people have a lot of baggage in their lives. And now they're believers. So how are they supposed to live? How are they supposed to follow Christ when they don't have the perfect family, the perfect life situation? And Paul addresses those. Something else that I want to share with you is when, my, when we were raising our kids, my oldest son, when he was young, his name Zach, he liked to play this game. I called it, I termed it the, the what if game. He would start out with some crazy scenario like, you know, what if da- dad, what if aliens landed in our backyard? And what if they sucked our brains out? And what if, you know, and it would just go on and on. And after a while, I would just kind of lose consciousness myself, you know, trying to keep up with this thing. And then I thought, what do I say to that? But, so I want to play a little bit of the what if game, but hopefully mine won't be quite as bad as Zach's when he was a young boy. So, Let me just say this. What if you're unmarried? And that could encompass a lot of different things. Maybe it's just that you're never married, you've never been married, and you're just waiting to be married. Maybe it's you've never been married and you don't want to be married. Maybe it's that you're divorced. Maybe you were widowed. Maybe you were abandoned by your spouse. Maybe you're a single parent. You see, there are a lot of different situations, and I've just scratched the surface. What about parenting? What if you've never had children? What if you're married and you want children, but you've been able, unable to have any children? What if you are in a relationship right now that is very, very difficult? Maybe someone is treating you horribly. Maybe even you're being abused. Maybe you've been hurt or abandoned. Or maybe you're the one that hurts someone else. Maybe you're the abuser. See, there are lots of what ifs. So the question is, is there hope for you? I'll go ahead and cut to the end and tell you, yes, there is. There is hope for you. In this passage, Paul addresses different groups of people. If you look again in verse 8, he says, To the married. To the married. He's talking to married people. Then you go down to verse 10, he says, or excuse me, to the unmarried, sorry, in verse 8. To the unmarried. And then verse 10, to the married. And then implied in verse 10 and 11 also is, he speaks to the divorced. And then, here's my place where I got my title, verse 12, to the rest. (laughs) That's the rest of us. You see, Paul is trying to apply the truths of God's word to everybody. You don't have to have a perfect life. Matter of fact, nobody does. But the problem is we compare ourselves with other people. We look at others and we think, "If if my life was just like theirs... If my kids acted like their kids, my kids are crazy. If my wife was like that guy's wife, my husband was like that, guy, that lady's husband. If my job was like their job. And all of those things lead to lies from the enemy. They confuse us, they distract us. All of these groups that Paul mentions are groups, but they also have subgroups <laughs> because there are all kinds of different situations that people have in their lives. I want you to notice something else about this passage. There's a word or a couple of different words here that are that help us to understand that there are a lot of conditional things happening in these relationships. Notice in verse 9 he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control. Verse 11, but if she does. Or later on it says in verse 11, or else, there's this, If there's something might be true, but it might not be true. So Paul's dealing with all kinds of different situations. He's addressing them all. So know this. God sees you right where you are. His word speaks to you in your pain and confusion. And he cares deeply for you. And you are not too far gone for him to love. No matter where you come from. No matter what your background. Know that. Know that. So why did Paul address these things? They had written and they had asked. Why would they ask these type of questions? (laughs) Well, we need to consider where they're from. They're from a place a lot like the United States of America. A place called Corinth. Corinth was known for debauchery they were known for wicked living. As a matter of fact, they were known for it so much that there was a phrase coined to describe a wicked type of life. It was called to Corinthianize. You were acting like Corinthians. You were so wicked. And these people that are in this church grew up, many of them, in that situation in their world. If you want to know what it's like, think of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The very next verse says, and such were some of you. The list of sins that we just read described the congregation at Corinth. They were some of the rest of us. (laughs) They didn't have perfect lives. They were from this society that was so immersed in sin. And they had baggage They had problems. They got saved, and that gave them forgiveness of sins, and it gave them an eternity with Christ, but it didn't instantly take care of all the past. It didn't wipe away all the sins that they had committed or the results of those sins. It may have wiped away the penalty of those sins, but it didn't always take care of the consequences of them, the lingering results. Or just the fact that the rest of your family is still embroiled in that lifestyle and here you are following Christ. How do you live this way? So that's why they ask the questions. So let's talk about Paul's answers. Paul's answers. First for the unmarried. Look in verse 8 again. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So if you're not married, Paul says, I'm just telling you, it's good to stay that way. (laughs) Now, I'm married. I'm kind of a fan of marriage myself. I've been married 42 years. And I like it so well, I've stayed 42 years. It's worked out pretty good for us. But I will admit, it's not easy. Marriage is good, but it's not always easy. So, Paul knew that. And he was telling them, If it's possible, (laughs) it's good for you to remain unmarried. Why does he say that? Look over in verse 32 of this same chapter. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. And notice this last verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's talking to the unmarried, and many times when you're unmarried, you think, oh, if I could only find that right person. If I could only get married, then my life would be complete. And Paul's just saying, hey, pay attention here. There are problems that people that get married have too. It's not continual bliss. If you think it is, please call Pastor Al and set up an appointment for counseling. Because it is work to stay married. Jake preached that message a couple of weeks ago how to stay married that is a great title folks because it's a job it's a job it takes work it takes sacrifice and there are going to be times even if you have the godliest spouse that you're gonna feel tugged between your commitment to Jesus and your commitment to this person so Paul encouraged them if possible Stay unmarried. But, verse 9, if, there's that if, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is saying, don't get involved in sexual immorality and say, well, I'm going to do like Paul. almost stay single, but I'm just going to play the field a little bit. No, that's not what he's saying. You still have to remain pure in your life. But if you are not able to resist, get married. Get married. That's what Paul says. Chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells us how important marriage is. When the, when the uh, Pharisees were challenging him on divorce because Moses had said they could write a bill of divorcement. And they'd come up with all kinds of reasons that they could divorce they're And they said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, divorce his wife for any reason? And here's what Jesus said. He went back to Genesis. This says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Paul says here in verse, two, verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's not saying that, some, he's saying some things that are inspired and some things that are not inspired. He's saying the Lord himself spoke about this. That's back in Matthew chapter 19. The Lord already spoke about this. He says, to to the married, excuse me, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. God is very serious about the marriage covenant. We've had some recent weddings in our church family. And every time we have a wedding, there's a couple that stands before the preacher who's officiating that wedding and he and they make certain statements to one another. We call those vows. We call those vows. And normally those vows will say something like you commit yourself to that person to love and to cherish for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till, till death do us part. I had a pastor friend years ago who uh, He said, he put in his vows that he did at weddings, and I will never divorce you. I will never divorce you. That's really what you're saying in those other vows. He just made it real plain. (laughs) You know, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis. God puts a lot of emphasis on vows. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told that it's better to not vow at all than to vow and not pay. You can't come back to God and say, I made a vow, Lord, but I didn't really mean it. I was just kidding. Or I didn't know this. I didn't know that. I can promise you there are a lot of things about your spouse you didn't know when you married him. You're going to find out over time. Most of what you knew when you got married were probably the good things. But some of the bad things you're going to figure out. And guess what? Your spouse is going to figure them out about you too. But you make that vow because you understand this is a permanent deal. God has called us to marriage and to be committed to marriage permanently if we're going to do it. Now, if you think a divorce will solve your problems, let me just give you a little advice. When you leave that marriage, you take at least 50% of the problems with you. And when you find somebody else, they're going to have problems too. So the best thing to do is work the one out you've got. But I want you to notice what he says next. Verse 9. Or, not verse 9. To the married, verse 11. He says, but if she does, separate from her husband, if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You know, in in Baptist churches, since I've been in one, oftentimes I've noticed that divorce seems to be the unpardonable sin. Guess what? It's not. There are consequences if you go through it. There are difficulties if you go through it. But if you are, remember, this is for the rest of us, if you are someone who has been through that, God loves you too. He has a plan for your life too. First of all, he says, remain unmarried. Don't complicate it. Don't complicate it. Or try to reconciliation, if at all possible. This is what God's word is to us in that situation. God wants us to try To reconcile. And then verse 12. He speaks to the rest. To the rest. To the rest I say. I, not the Lord. Once again, he's not saying. This is not inspired. You don't have to listen to this. What he's saying is. Jesus didn't speak to this situation specifically. You don't have this in your word of God. that Jesus said this. But this is still the word of God, okay? To the rest, I say, not I, I not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should, she should not, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving wife, husband is made holy because of his wife, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving separate partner separates, let it be so. in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And remember, Paul is addressing The rest. He's talked to specific people. He's talked to the unmarried. He's talked to the married. He's talked to the divorced. Divorced, now he's talking to the rest. See, God has a plan for those of us who fall under the rest. People who have been in situations, and he gives this example, someone who is married to an unbeliever. It's a believer married to an unbeliever. Now, at this time, Paul had not yet written the, the book of 2 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. He had certainly taught this principle at the church of Corinth because they were asking questions. And certainly one of these questions implied here by this answer is that What if I am a believer and my spouse is an unbeliever and I shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, so therefore, shouldn't I divorce the unbelieving spouse? Then I can marry a Christian and everything will be wonderful. And Paul is answering questions. Remember that. So if they've posed this question and the principle is that we're not to be unequally yoked, then how does someone fit in this category? How does a Christian end up married to a non-Christian? Well, there are many ways. One way may be that a Christian person married somebody that wasn't saved. And please hear me. Don't do that. Don't do that. That is a bad idea. I know sometimes we think, well, they'll change after we get married. Don't believe that. They may change, they may not, but God's word tells you not to be unequally yoked. But what if you did? Years ago, first church that I pastored, I was preaching through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And I came to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter six, and I had a lady come up to me afterwards, and she was in her 60s at the time, and she said, Nobody in this church ever told me that. And I thought, well, it was in your Bible. But she had married an unbeliever years before. Fortunately, by the time I came to the church, he had gotten saved. And he was a Christian, a fine man. But as a young woman, she married an unbeliever. And the pastor didn't say a word about it, just married him. Folks, you need to understand, this is a really, really dangerous thing for believers to marry unbelievers. You cannot have fellowship with darkness if you are light. You're not going to think the same way. But if you do, now another situation could have been they got saved after they married. And one person got saved and the other person didn't get saved. But whatever the situation is, Paul says, if you're in that situation That as long as that unbeliever is pleased to live with you, then you should stay with him. Whether it's a man or whether it's a woman. He talks to both genders. You should not divorce him. And here's the reason why. It's twofold. First of all, he says in verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. Now, does this mean household salvation? No, that's not what he's talking about. The idea of being holy means to be set apart. And there is a blessing that comes on a person by being in a family with a believer. There's a kind of an overflow of blessing when you have a family member who follows Christ And the people around them reap the benefits of the fact that Christ is in that person's life. And that's what he's talking about. Those children will be blessed by having at least one parent who follows Jesus Christ. That spouse who is an unbeliever has a greater chance of hearing about Christ because they see Christ lived out in their spouse who is following Christ. And then the next thing that is a benefit of that is the potential For them to be saved. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the principle here is that their salvation and God's glory is more important than our comfort. If life is difficult for us in a marriage, but by being faithful to Christ, We can win our family to Christ. Then we are just going to have to glorify Christ first. Put him first. See, the principle, verse 16, if you look again, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If you're in that situation, you may have that influence. But don't put yourself in that situation, counting on being able to win them to Christ. Now, we've talked through this passage. And now I want to talk about some principles to draw from this passage. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want, you, know, you can turn there if you like, but I think it's going to be on the screen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, let me bring this all together so you understand where I'm going. See, all the things that we just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 were all these different scenarios of brokenness. And as we said earlier, there are many more scenarios of brokenness. In this room, if I asked everybody to stand up and tell your story of brokenness, there's no telling how many we would have and how many different varieties that we would have. I shared a little bit with you about mine. One of the things that I struggled with growing up in this situation was that I had a stepfather, and I wondered if he loved his kids, his biological kids, more than he loved me. I still remember one specific instance where we were were on vacation as a family and my brother who was a lot older than me was there and this was his biological son. And we were standing there talking to the owner of of the boat dock where we were at. And my dad, my stepdad introduced us as his sons, plural. He didn't think anything about that statement that meant the world to me. That put me on the same level with his biological son in my mind. But I struggled with that so much, even as an adult, it was very difficult because I loved both my stepfather and my biological father, but I felt like I was betraying one if I loved the other one. I'm just being real, okay? You know what helped me through that? To recognize that I had a heavenly father who loved me unconditionally. And guess what? I was born into his family, born again, but I was also adopted into his family. When I realized who I was in Christ, it changed everything. I shed a lot of tears as a young boy and had a lot of concern, a lot of inner battles over my situation growing up. But when God showed me that he had birthed me into his family through the new birth and he had adopted me and given me a new name, (laughs) I realized that's exactly what God was showing me in my childhood. See, knowing who you are in Christ changes everything. It changes your brokenness. It changes your identity. Because if you identify as the redheaded stepchild, like I did, then you're always going to act like the redheaded stepchild. And you're going to have problems in your heart and mind that the redheaded stepchild is going to have. If you identify as the divorced person, if you identify as the abused person, if you identify as the person who was the abuser or who did abandon your spouse or not pay child support for your kids, if you identify yourself that way, you're always going to live like that. But if you recognize that there's redemption in Jesus Christ, that he has given you a new life, he's given you a new name, he's given you a new identity, and you're a new person, it changes everything. It changes everything. Let's read this again. Then, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things on the earth. You see, if you recognize that you have been raised with Christ, how do you get raised with Christ? First, you've got to die with him. He tells us that in the very next phrase, Set your, or, or for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. That means that you, positionally, you died with him on the cross. My name, my given name when I was born was James Allen Root III. When I was 11 years old, my stepdad adopted me and changed my name to James Allen Lynch. I still remember his 11-year-old boy Practicing my new signature. I've been signing that way 49 years now. I never accidentally write James A. Root. It's not my name anymore. It's not my identity anymore. Now, I, I love my biological father. I was very fortunate to be able to lead him to Christ before he passed away. And I look forward to seeing him in heaven. I love him dearly. But my identity was changed. When you became a Christian, your identity was changed. James A. Ruth III is dead. Your old person is dead. You died with Christ. And now you have been risen. So what does that mean? Well, if you have been risen with Christ, what are you supposed to do? Seek the, the things that are above. Don't let the past bog you down anymore. Don't wallow in your self-pity or your sin from the past. Recognize that you've been given a new identity. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seek to follow Him. Seek to glorify Him. Now it's time to live for Him, not for yourself. Set your minds on things above. And recognize you have a new life. You know, I've probably done this. You probably have too. Something you really enjoy, you'll say, well, my life is, and whatever that thing is. I like to go whitewater rafting, you know. But I would never say my life is whitewater rafting. You know what your life is? When Christ, who is your life, shall appear. When he appears, he is your life. Your life is Christ. Everything about you is wrapped up in who He is and what He's done for you and who He's made you to be. So, now it's question time for you. Here's the question. Number one, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you personally, in faith, repented of your sins and turn to him and ask him to be your savior? Have you trusted him? I'm not talking about your church attendance. I'm not even talking about your baptism. I'm not talking about your membership to church. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Secondly, you have a relationship with Christ. You know him, you know that you're saved. Are you wallowing in something from the past? Your old identity? Is there something there that's bogging you down? That's keeping you from setting your mind on the things above? Something that is deep in your heart. You need to recognize who you are right now. Ask the Lord to teach you I had to ask him to teach me. You see, I became a father too. I have four sons, four children, two sons, two daughters. Now I have 12 grandchildren. And I want to place in them a security of knowing what a loving father looks like. I didn't know that. But I had to ask God to teach me. I had to ask him to help me to be secure in his love so that I wouldn't doubt his love like I had doubted my stepfather's love or my real father's love who wasn't there anymore. See what I'm talking about? It's things like that. That's what the old man does to us. You live as if you're still the old man, the old person, the old life. You're not that anymore. It's time to turn and embrace Jesus and ask Him to teach you how to overcome the things that are bogging you down, the things that are tearing you apart. Let's pray and ask Daniel and team to come and sing. And as we're praying, I just want you to think. I just want you to focus on whatever the Lord has laid on your heart. Maybe it's that you need salvation, that you need to know Christ. If that's the case, please come to me, come to Pastor Al, come to Scott, come to Jake. There are many in this room that can speak to you and talk to you and help you to know how you can be secure in your faith. If you are struggling with your own sin, or maybe the sins that others have committed against you in the past. As we think, as we focus, as we concentrate, as we pray, seek God and ask Him to help you through that. And if you need help with that, please let us know. We would love to talk to you, to pray with you, to counsel you if need be. But don't leave this place burdened, the past. Recognize what Jesus has done for you. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask you, Lord, to speak to hearts. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to the prompting of your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.